If we wanted a can't-fail agenda to get America's children to succeed in education, what would that be? We're going to talk about it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. Friends, I'm really excited about today's show. We have a guest, Mark Porter McGee, who is the CEO and the founder of 50Can. He is somebody that I actually really respect in terms of his ability to understand issues from a policy perspective. And I just want to give you a heads up. This is very much a policy show. We're going to talk about the agenda that we should have for America's children if we want them to succeed in education. 50Can has a very good kind of set of priorities that they believe that if we got them right, our kids would succeed. So with that, I want to introduce the show and just let you know what you're in for, which is a very policy-focused show today. And we hope that you'll listen to it, you'll love it, and you'll give us some feedback after you hear it. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to uh, dig into my favorite topic, making education better for all kids and hopefully embracing the optimistic future we could build. We could build a better country. We could build a better education system. So, you know, just to tap into that and start there, are you really optimistic? I mean, you work in states across the country. You're trying to advance policy in state houses across the country. And from your experience, a bird's eye view that none of us have, are you an optimistic person? Well, I hope I I am an optimistic person. That may be more my personality than a clear-eyed assessment of the, the current state of politics in America. But I think I will make a case for optimism, which is I think our kids need us to bring an op- optimistic attitude to what's possible. Like if we yeah. don't believe that we can create something better, then I feel like we're just setting ourselves up to fail from the first step of the journey. So I try to get myself in an optimistic mindset when I think about our work. And I think, try to think about, you know, if we could build something that we'd want every kid to have, what would that look like? And then we go out and we fight really hard to make that possible. So just to get kind of like a baseline for people listening to this, we have 55 or 50 million uh, American students, public education students, What is your assessment of where we're at with them right now in 2023 post-pandemic? Education is not one thing. So there's not one metric you can use probably to to figure out how kids are doing. But if you kind of piece them together, it seems like the past few years have been really hard on kids across a bunch of dimensions. So the kind of simplest ones are, are things like the NAEP data on math and reading that have come out. And there's been a few versions of it. We've looked at it at a few different angles and a few different grades. But I think essentially the story it tells is that kids are performing at the place they were, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I think we got used to kind of slow and steady progress in the 80s and 90s. And so it's a little jarring to see that reversal. But there's some historical context for it. So, you know, some people might look at dropping back to the 80s and say, well, the 80s weren't that bad. (laughs) <laughs> uh, some of us grew up in the 80s. I don't know if we'd say it quite like that, but... Pepsi clear. I want Pepsi clear. <laughs> yeah. There's an element of that. Now, if we look at something different, if we look at like mental health, which is admittedly a little harder to track, but but across a few dimensions, including you know surveys of kids, those numbers seem to be growing to levels we haven't measured before. So, so the levels of depression and other 
indicators of, of challenges for kids. So that I think we're still kind of grappling with what that means. And I think there's other things that we would care about, like going to college, is or at least, you know, having the option to go to college where it seems like it's going backwards. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure you kind of were in the mix like I was, you know, five, 10 years ago when it was just, it just, the conversation was, we're going to give everyone a chance to be prepared to go to college. And now that's going in the wrong direction. You know, and kids tell us a lot, you know, a lot of the kind of more subjective numbers say that the thing that isn't working for them is enjoying learning at school. So you, you add it all up and it does feel like we're going in the wrong direction at a time when we felt 10 years ago, we weren't where we needed to be, you know, and there was so much more we needed to do. And then the last thing I would just say is, Across most of those dimensions, what we've seen is that the kids who were the least well served by school have seen the biggest drops. And that tracks with poverty as well and a lot of other kind of built in structural disadvantages. So the system as a whole seems to have become more unequal, even as the overall numbers are dropping. It was unequal before, and it's just more unequal now. What do you think are the big barriers for us to take positive steps forward? What's standing in the way? So for me, I found it helpful to think about where we've made gains before and what that looked like. And I think it starts, this is going to sound a little soft, but I think it starts with just believing that there is a better way. Because I think that all the technical challenges that would emerge are hard but overcomable if we decide we're going to do it as a country. So I was looking at the numbers back in 1910. Only 9% of kids graduated from high school. And I find this inspiring. And the reason I do is because 30 years later, the majority of kids were graduating from high school. Mm -hmm. And we started at this number. So I think if we were having this conversation on the 1910 version of a podcast, and I said, I think that high school is for everyone. Everyone should be able to go. Some people might say, well, only 9% of kids go. It's the wealthy. High school itself is this kind of elite experience. It's not very practical. How are we going to do this? Where's the money going to come from? You know, and we, we made it work. And whatever, you know, whatever problems we have in high school, I think the fact that now I think the graduation rate is about 90%, that's been a real sea change. And I think if you, you, know, if you go back before that in the 19th century, the majority of people didn't go to any kind of schooling. And we had to kind of imagine that was possible. Well, let me ask you a question about that, about this high school graduation piece. I mean, it almost feels like a ham sandwich can graduate from high school right now. Because at the same time that you have this really high graduation rate, you have a really low proficiency rate. And like you have like other measures that you take, like college preparedness, the college board does these kind of, you know, several measures that prove that you're on track for college preparedness. And the number of especially low income students or black students or students of color that only have like one of them, maybe, or, you know, don't have all of them is pretty low. It's like really outstandingly low on some other measures of prep being prepared for life or a career or college, but everybody's graduating. Like that's a really high graduation rate you just said. And it's kind of like, what does graduation really mean if you can graduate from high school and not be prepared for anything? Fair question. There's a tension between those things, clearly, right? So like you see this with like average SAT scores, right? The average SAT score can be going down because we're getting more kids to take the SAT, you know? And I think there's something about that with high school too. Like we go from 9% to 90%, then the obvious question is going to be, well, does the average amount that a high school graduate knows go down? And I think you're going to, you have to work harder as the numbers go up. And I think what I would say is that I think that the creation of public high school as a thing, as, as part of the continuum, 
was a huge leap forward and it tracked for a long time with achievement. The average student was getting, you know, better educated, more knowledgeable. It seemed to relate to America's 20th century economic growth. We were expanding opportunity. There were lots of problems within it, but it overall that was the right move. And then it stalled out, you know. And I think there's been this debate in of what next. And and I think part of what next, part of the kind of traditional ed reform what next is like we're going to do it better. Better meaning, you know, more rigorous, higher achieving. There was other versions of what next. So you've seen this big pusher on pre-K. So part, you know, maybe what we need to do to make our K-12 better is pre-K-12. And then you've also seen this push around the grades after high school. So whether you think of that as two years of community college or four years of college, like we're going to make that part of the system. My take on that is I'm not sure we've gotten it quite right. Another way to think about it is we're always on a path of trying to give to everyone for free the things that rich families give their kids right now. And in the 19th century, that was an education. Mm-hmm. Any education. Yeah. And then, you know, in the 20th century, it was high school. And now I think, you know, when you look at what wealthy families are giving their kids, it, it seems like it's so much more, you know? So it is the, yes, it's a, it's a choice of schools and hopefully you find the school that fits your kid. But it's also the tutor if they're falling behind. It's the summer learning experiences. It's the excursions. It's the internships. There's just this whole suite of learning. And and some of it is school, but but a lot is the learning that goes around school. So one of the things we've been trying to figure out is like, what would it look like to try to give more of that to kids? And that I think is lined up with what we owe kids right now, given all the challenges they've had coming out of the pandemic. How do we do more for them? So that that's kind of how I've been thinking about it. It includes pre-K, it includes the later grades, but it includes hopefully better schools. But it's also the, the all the, the surrounding learning that happens during that period. That was a good segue into your five promises that America should make for American children. So people listening, if you go to 50Can's website, just Google 50Can. And once you get there, the very first thing you'll see at the top is the five promises that we should make to America's children. And when you click on it and you go there, the campaign is called Believe in Better, which I actually really like. It's, it's, it's in line with you, Mark. It's in line with that hopeful, kind of optimistic tone. Believe better. You got to believe, man. But there are five things that you talk about. Number one is the education that's right for you. Tutoring and care for all. A world of open and connected learning. A family's right to know what's working. And number five, a clear path to a career. And under each of these things, there's a concept. You know, like these aren't just kind of headings. There's there's a concept under each of these. So let's start with the first one because I'm really interested in what are the policy implications of these things. They sound good, but they're, they're headlines. But how do they become material in the real world? So the first one, the education that's right for you because every student learns differently. I said before, America has, you know, 50 to 55 million students that come from very different stations in life and very different ty- have very different kind of learning needs. Right now, public school is the catch-all for everybody. And kids, you know, are in, you can correct me if my numbers are wrong, but it's like 14,000, 15,000 school districts, 100,000 schools that all are offering a world kind of fund of opportunities, right? Like, you know, electives and IB and AP and special education, vocational ed, CTE, all I could keep going down the list. This thing, we, we always talk about the public education system like it's one thing. So what will we need to do differently if we're still not having a place for every kid to find the education that's right for them, even though we're doing 
this like $700 billion thing right now? So I would start by saying that when we started building the foundations of this public education system, for sure, there was a mindset around standardization and efficiency that went into it. And, you know, some of that has kind of like precursors in Europe and the Prussian system and you know, the sort of the way they did things. But also, I think it was just the culture of America at the time was pretty much like, it, it wasn't so much about customization. You know, people joke about the Ford Model T, you can get any color you want as long as it's black. There was kind of a <laughs> simplicity to it to make it possible, you know. And I think that was true of a lot of the ways we built the public education system, and not just the public education system. I think, you know, if you look at Catholic schools and the kind of, you know, the the sort of way they, they kind of move people through in large class sizes and that sort of thing. So usually as we become, you know, more prosperous in an area, we try to figure out how to make things more personal, if that's possible. And so I, I think you're right that I think some of the public school kind of traditional system has been on that journey to try to figure out how to offer more to kids. And some of that might be like more classes. So instead of just like I can take one foreign language, it's Spanish, maybe two, you know, they had French. You know, we start to think about like, how can we expose kids to more choices and what does that look like? And some of that can be within a school. Some of that can be taking advantage of the internet and scale to connect kids to other classes. So there's levels of that, but I think there's also types of choices. So some kids may thrive in a traditional school environment. Some kids may do better in a smaller school or a micro school. Some families may do well in homeschooling or some sort of collaborative. And so it's trying to think about like, how do you offer the same choices that a wealthy family would have to everyone? And a lot of that has to do with money in terms of how we fund things. I would also say when we've approached it, you know, both kind of in this concept paper level and just the work we do, we also are trying to figure out how to shift our funding so it's connected to need. So I think you've seen this push over the last few years to say that, you know, if you're educating a low-income student or an ELL student or other students that need extra support, then there's going to be extra money that comes along with that. And maybe extra money overall. Actually, in Minnesota, we have what's called compensatory aid. You know, it was part of the Minnesota miracle years ago, which kind of flipped the script on, actually, if you're a richer kid and you're in a richer school district or richer school, you actually get less money. So, you know, there's an incentive for schools to want to have some of the lower income kids in their schools or kids that fit different categories because it'll come with additional, you know, aid. Now what they've done with that oftentimes is they they've wanted those kids in their district, but then they segregate them into one part of the district and just live off of the extra money, kind of. But it's a good idea to weight the student funding towards serving more needs and more kids. I don't know how that translates though. I get it translating into services and more teaching of those kids in a personalized way. I don't know how that makes the leap, though, to like virtual schools, learning pods, micro schools, and homeschooling, which at least two of those have really bad kind of research behind them in terms of outcomes. And then the other two are kind of like the jury's out type of thing. I wonder when we make this leap forward into innovative and new kinds of schools, if we don't have some worry about the one thing that the traditional system does have in place is monitoring, like, you know, like stats and outcomes. We, we get to know what the outcomes actually are. Uh, that's how we know they're bad. <laughs> we know they're bad because <laughs> there's something there to tell us that they're bad. But we don't have that for some of these others. Yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do to build out a coherent system. So I think that if we're going to expand choices... Uh, which I think we should, and give parents more control, 
we've got to figure out a way to get more information across the range of things that that parents are taking on. And I think we have to shift the model of who we're serving. So I was talking to a testing company and I asked them who their customer is. And they said, the state agencies, <laughs> without blinking, like, of course, that's, that's, that's literally who we sell these products to. And I think you see that, you feel that as a parent, you know, like the parent is kind of an afterthought there. And you're absolutely right. And I do not discount at all that we do have these measures that provide some some check on how the system's doing, but the customers, the agencies, the data is released really slow. It's often released in a way that kind of is, is hard to read as a parent, and it's not a very two-way conversation. So I, I would say the part of this that we're trying to build that has been the slowest has not actually been choices, which continue to expand. It's been on measurement and accountability for families, whether that's money or how their kids are doing. And I, I you know, we're still looking for ideas and, and innovations to sort of get behind here because I think a lot of parents feel in the dark. And I feel in some ways we're going backwards. I think, you know, some people think that the next set of federal education legislation will roll back requirements about testing further. It's already been kind of weakening. We do a lot of work in the states we're in to backstop those tests and try to prevent them from being rolled back. But it feels like we're living on borrowed time right now. And so I'm hoping that technology will help provide some fuel. Because I think what families would love is more real-time information connected into where they want to go. And that helps them and their teachers teach better, support their kids better, make sure they're on track. That hasn't been built yet. So two quick responses to that. And then I want to move on to your next point. But on that one, I would say it would be nice to have when we have these debates an inventory of all that public schools offer already. Because I think the way that we talk about public education and the system and the establishment and traditional public schools is actually out of keeping with what is real. Like if you were to visit many places and look for what is the offering, what are the offerings? Some are doing better with personalized learning than others, you know, and, and this thing about like, so I want to go all the way back to the history when you said the Prussian thing. I don't think many Americans know that their early kind of education system was really based upon the Prussian model, which was meant for soldiers to be compliant, right? Like a way to re-educate soldiers to be more compliant. And all of our people went over there and got trained by uh, Prussian PhDs and then came back here and started implementing the first public school things based on that model. And I've had some people argue with me, but I mean, I don't know what there is to argue with it. You could look this up. But I do think, Mark, and you can check me on this, I do think that the 1970s blew up what we knew of that past system. So that 1900, 1920, 1930, all that system that we like like to harken back to, we have to like account for the 1970s blew all that up. Magnet schools, uh, busing, different kinds of schools, schools on roller skates, you know, schools on you know open schools, schools with no walls, um, schools with no chairs. Like it, it just it kind of you know the federal government put out demonstration money to districts to just try a bunch of stuff. And we have like the Alum Rock experience. We have the the Southeast initiatives in Minneapolis. You know, we've got the federal government putting money into blowing up the system and just saying listen. And there are no rules now. And Minneapolis is a good case study in that the east side of Minneapolis became the southeast demonstration project. And it, it almost had no regular schools anymore. 
Like, like, you know, everything became kind of like the college had a school, the university had a school, the hippies had a school, the yippies had a school. Joe Nathan, which many people listening to this would know, started a dominant school, school that actually did really well, which was a free school. That was a K through 12 free school. And man, it was free, man. So it feels like jumping into wild things or the next things oftentimes is alluring. But like if you care about outcomes and making steady forward progress, especially with historically marginalized people whose steady progress now has been, to your point, interrupted greatly. Well, first of all, I, I, it, it takes away the allure to me of doing things that come without you know some pretty strong uh, research behind it. And the second thing I'll say about that is when we talk about parents, I think parents want, and then we fill in that blank. I think we fill in that blank sometimes with what we want. But I think many parents want a conservative thing. They want to be able to drop their kids off to an open, clean, safe public school where they don't have to worry about whether or not their kids are being taught or not. And we in the education world want them to want more than that. But I don't know that they always do. Yeah, I think that's right. I was going to say, by the way, when you were talking about the 70s, I had this weird flashback of my high school, my second high school, because I moved in the middle of high school, and being taught by this teacher in this very cavernous thing. And she was complaining that back when they built the school, it was the open walls design that was very popular. And they had slowly put up like temporary boundaries to try to make it a, a classroom. I mean, what's so hilarious about that was they had research around the open concept working. And the very first thing they found out on the very first day was that it's loud. <laughs> like yeah, schools without, exactly. without walls yeah. is just a loud ass school. So. All right, well, let's jump to your next point here. Tutoring and care for every student in every community. And I like this one because I don't know very much about it, but I hear a lot of kind of back and forth about high quality, high dosage tutoring as a major intervention, uh, how much it could do for us. So why are you hooked on this one? Well, so I think it gets back a little bit to what you were saying, which is if we're going to offer more choices or we're going to do more things, we should try to stay grounded in what's actually delivering results. Which I think is right. And I, you know, I think we have to, when anytime you're trying to make, do something new, you have to accept a certain amount of risk, you know, try things, but you're hopefully creating kind of a, a feedback loop of measuring things and, and, and doing more of the things that work. And that, you know, and you don't have to always start from scratch. You can start, there's a lot of high quality research at this point of what makes a difference. So one thing that the research seems to point to is that small group, high dosage tutoring. So like frequent tutoring is one of the things that seems to reliably increase learning for kids and that we could add on top of what we're already doing. So that's sort of, that's part of the virtue of it. And it's not an insane amount of money. We're talking about thousands of dollars per kid, you know, not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. So that was part of the the idea of it. And then obviously the it, it was spurred by the fact that we have all this data tracking learning loss, you know, depending on you you measure it and the 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 kids you're talking about months or, or years of, of learning loss that we're trying to overcome. And at least for, you know, at least for one more year, we have some federal dollars that might pay for these things. So that's something we were pushing is, is free tutoring for kids uh, during the school year, either after school or in the school. And then the other thing we've been working on, both pushing as a policy and actually doing in partnership with Bloomberg Philanthropies as a project, is free summer learning opportunities as well. So last year, we helped support a program to bring that to New York City charter school kids. And this year, it's expanding to eight cities. Last year, it served about 25,000 kids. And we have a pre and post test from that. And what it found is that on average, 
the percentage of kids proficient in reading and math went up about 20 points over the course of the summer wow. on that test. So it was, you know, very in a summer over the summer. So over wow. 10 to 12 weeks, you know, and there's more long-term research that needs to be done to track it over time. But that was our experience. I think there's been a lot of studies. Kids seem to really thrive when they get more personalized attention. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that teachers can always provide. And, you know, we have this big class size debate and oftentimes the you know, even when you put a ton of money into the system, you're talking about moving from, you know, 27 kids to 24. And there's a chance for kids to get in, you know, groups of four or five, six. And, and it's a very different experience. I think out of all the things that you mentioned here. So if people go to the website, they'll see you mentioned three things under tutoring care for every student. One of them is access to free, high quality tutoring, not just during the school year, but year round. Getting guidance wellness and mental health services from a caring adult, a mentor who listens to and understands each student's individual needs. So that's another piece of it. And then the last piece is what you were talking about now, the ability to choose among free camps and opportunities this summer and beyond. I will say on this last one, how big this is. I was happy to see this in your thing because I don't see it in anybody else's kind of like platform of must-haves. But someone should write a think piece on how expensive summer is and how savage the inequalities of what kids do during the summer is based on class, upper class, middle class, working class, and underclass. Like class by class, it just changes the potential of what summer does for kids. So that you put a number on it, like, listen, in 12 weeks, we can get kids moving ahead this far or whatnot. We can offer them this opportunity and we can pay for it. I'm just waiting for more people to get on that bandwagon of the missed opportunity that we have with millions of kids every summer. Yeah, me too. It's something I've been passionate about for a while. So I was excited that there were opportunities emerging with funders to try to expand this. And then there's also work at the policy level. So Atlanta with some of their COVID money, did a, a big push around this. And, and so there's other cities stepping up. And, and so I, I think there's great opportunity. And there's also an opportunity for more kind of entrepreneurship and nonprofit leadership. So there's a program that grew out of Uncommon Schools called Change Summer, which is a partnership between different charter schools to create free summer programming for their kids. And so I, I think it's a neglected area. And, and to your point, it's a real anxiety as a, as a parent every summer, you're like, now, now what am I supposed to do with my kids? And, you know, other countries do have summer, you know, breaks. It's not just America. I think every country has some kind of summer break, but ours are unusually long. You know, it's not uncommon to have a, you know, a six week break. It's pretty weird to have a 12 week break. So it's a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, we, our kids are actually next week going to summer camp. They're going to a YMCA summer camp and it's a real relief to know that they're going to have that experience and I don't have to kind of piece it together at least for the next you know four weeks. Yeah, I have a colleague in the Pahara Institute who started and ran something called Galileo, which provided, you know, thousands over, I think, 20 years, thousands and thousands of students outdoor learning experiences. And Glenn, the guy who who actually started it, actually was a lifelong Boy Scout, too. He's He's been doing Boy Scout stuff for years and years. And in hearing his story, I thought about how Not everything has to come from a school either, though. There are these kind of other out-of-school time opportunities that I don't think we are using right now that could provide lots of opportunities for kids. Yeah. One thing that's a little hard about America when we're looking to copy other countries is that other countries seem to be better at running government (laughs) than we do. Our our government can be slow and frustrating, you know, like takes us forever to build a subway stop or that sort of thing. And we should get better at that. We should demand more and maybe invest more in them. But I would also say America does have a very uniquely strong civic infrastructure. 
And I don't think we always take advantage of that when we think about education. And there's a lot more as we go into the out of school space and summer space, like you're saying, there's a ton of resources that we could scale up. And there's a lot of people who would like to serve more kids and serve kids more equitably if we could figure out a way to make the dollars work. Well, that's a good segue into your next point. The next point of the five points, a world of open and connected learning. So you have the tools you need to strengthen your community and succeed in life. And this, you know, has several sub points. The very first one is like the most duh one of all of them is we need to connect kids. You know, there needs, we need to close the digital divide. We need high speed internet for young people so that they can get the tools and access to things that help them learn. The ability to take courses virtually. I'm going to challenge you this one on Mark. We're going to come back to this one, the virtual school thing. I'm all for it. Believe me, I'm all for it. And I loved it when my kids were home. But anyways, people always beat me up when I say that I love it. They beat me up on the research around virtual learning. I love the last two here. Become an informed participant in the American democratic system. So I love the fact that there's a civic-minded part of this. And earn credits from civic, nonprofit, university, professional, and government organizations. I also love this because, like I said, things outside of school actually a lot of times, I mean, if, listen, if we had a AmeriCorps for K-12, you know, if we had something that was more service-based but offered a benefit and a reward and, you know, kind of was pro-social and brought people, young people together while they're still kids, I think we'd have a better country. But anyways, let's talk about this point, Mark. So this one's being more connected. Well, I would start by saying when the pandemic hit, I think it was a real pressure test of our internet infrastructure. And I think what we found is that it was really lacking. So we sent parents home. We said, log on, you'll get the homework. They couldn't log on or they tried to have two kids doing video streaming at once. You know, it's like the old days when you flush the toilet while someone's taking a shower. (laughs) (laughs) So so there was a big push and and I I think a a helpful push in a lot of states to expand access to free internet. And, And some of that was you know, not the quality it needed. And we've been upgrading it. And there's a big push around devices. But I think we can't take that for granted, because it was partial and incomplete. And there's a life cycle to this technology. So the Chromebooks that were issued three years ago are, you know, on their way to the trash heap, and we had to think about what's next. So when you think about like what wealthy families give their kids, and what the internet makes possible in terms of learning, it feels like that needs to be part of the public system as, as we think about what kids need. I will say that said, as it blends into things like online learning, it's clear that there is a, a good and a bad to internet learning. And I think there, it does, it's an amazing, you know, it's amazing what we have access to now and, and, and self-motivated kids who are going down these like, you know, learning rabbit holes can, can teach themselves all sorts of things. And it's now a big part of, you know, my son is, or last year took a class on Python coding and almost all of his homework was like log onto a computer. And, you know, it's hard to learn Python in a book. But I think you're right. I mean, one of the first studies we did on in partnership with NAXA and the National Alliance looked at virtual charter schools and, and the data was really clear, like they're they're performing way lower than traditional brick and mortar charter schools. And we put that out and it was not like the most popular thing we put out. Um, <laughs> I wonder why. Did you bump up against yeah. the lobby? <laughs> <laughs> so I had a bunch of meetings with people, you know, because I'm always happy to talk to, you know, people who were a little frustrated. And so I would say two things. One is, it is absolutely true. And I think the researchers would say that while the scores are lower, you're also not always dealing with apples to oranges in terms of the kids you might select into it halfway through the year. They're being bullied. This is a 
you know, this is an option that they just have to jump onto. And that's a, it's already a disruptive environment. Or, but I, I also think from the pandemic, we learned, I think part of the reason that scores dropped during the pandemic is it's harder for most kids to stay engaged or, and adults. <laughs> if the only interaction you're having is virtual, it's, a, it's more complicated. So I don't think we figured it out. But I do feel like whatever we do, we should try to get better and mine the digital divide. So whatever upside rich kids are getting from the internet. Let's make sure poor kids get that too. Well, you know, on this point, we could transition to the next one. I mean, on this point, kids are learning already. That's why I call a lot of my stuff always learning. I had an elder years ago tell me, stop saying our kids aren't learning. Kids are always learning. They're always learning. They may not be learning what you want them to learn, but they're always learning. And that's where kind of my pitch around talking about always learning. Our kids are learning from the time they wake up until they go to sleep. And one way they're doing it is online. The first thing they do when they want to do something is look up a YouTube video for how you do it. And it's right there at their fingertips, right? And it's kind of like... Neo in the Matrix, you know, he puts the thing in his head and he's like, I know Kung Fu now. Well, that's what they do with YouTube. Like, I know how to do whatever that it is that they're trying to do. Even things like, <laughs> this is where he gets criminally insane. You know, I have a son that likes tries to beat this system and figure things out all the time. And you know those claw machines in the arcade that the claw comes down, picks something up and put it in thing. They're notoriously cheap. They actually are meant to take your money. But if you tap on the glass in a couple of places in the right order and then do a couple of pounds on the front plate of it, it actually um, gives you a thing for free or something like that. It's the thing that they use to calibrate the machine. Where did he find out about that? online on youtube so there you go moving on to the next one a family's right to know what's working it's all about accountability and you have several things about you know one is about the money i think one is about the performance of any educational choice that you choose and i think the third one is more about the information being usable like it be happening in real time and putting you in the position of knowing that your child is making progress towards college or a career so what's the policy implication of this one yeah so you know it's funny one of the first bills I ever worked on at CONCAN back in 2005 was called a Common Chart of Accounts Bill. And it was just a requirement that the way that districts reported out their spending had to align with accounting best practices. So you didn't dump all your money into other and we couldn't figure out you know, how it was being spent. So I feel like, this, like there's been a long running push to try to get more financial accountability. So some of the policy implications are like that. So like in Tennessee, connecting their big investment in school spending with more transparency on how money's being spent. So so parents can provide that accountability. Uh, you know, part of the implication, the policy implication on measurement is to try to figure out how to not go backwards on measurement of student learning, while also not just getting stuck in a defensive position where all we're doing is protecting a once a year state department of ed issued test. So there's a few ways to do that, but I was talking with ETS and they were sharing some of their experiments on things like skills diplomas where you could, you know, we have a traditional diploma, which is mostly a seat time diploma with a little bit of grades, getting to your point about what have you actually learned in high school? So what we're actually measuring when you graduate is usually, did you go to class, enough classes and not fail? That's essentially what we're measuring. And one thing that might be, you know, that wouldn't necessarily replace a traditional diploma, but we could sit alongside is a skills diploma that says you've actually learned how to do these things. So I think that that's the kind of thing that parents would find 
helpful to know is that is their child's you know time spent in high school going to add up to something that you know allows them to perform in college allows them to perform at the job could also connect into this question of getting set up for a career and there's a whole kind of you know continuum here so that you know some sort of measurement test is helpful with the skill but you can imagine getting all the way to like you know industry credentials licenses things that you can really take with you bring it to your job interview and it counts for something i think when we talked earlier about what families want and the fill in the blank people put a lot well families want x i don't know that Anybody could argue with me that most families want to know that they're capable of doing something after school that helps them earn a living, right? Like that, whatever you're doing, whether it's college, career, you know, credentials, that it sets you up to do something. And if you have neighborhoods and communities where kids graduate from high school and they come back and they're no better off than they were before they graduated, you have a lot of people in that neighborhood who are paying attention to that. I mean, what's the incentive to even finish high school? You know, you have a lot of places we used to call them dropout factories and we had parts of town that were just, you know, dropout parts of town. Well, it, did, it didn't lead to much, right? You talked about the early high schools, those early high schools that we were putting people through, it was in an age where they were preparing them while they were in high school directly to go do something afterwards that made the money, you know, and eventually got them a house and a car. I don't know what today's version of that is because nobody wants to go work on railroads or nobody wants to, you know, go do manufacturing, even advanced man- manufacturing anymore. It just doesn't turn young people's crank. But what could you you know, set them up for. And that, that gets us to your last point here. Your number five here is a clear path to the career you choose. It's about finding your fit and your pathway to a meaningful life. This is my favorite one because this is the one that this is the money. This is what it's all about. If whatever we just talked about doesn't lead you to a pathway to a meaningful life, a way to have a, I always say the same thing, have a place in the American economic mainstream, right? Because we have too many people marginalized out of the economic mainstream. If it doesn't do that for you, I don't know what, what else we're trying to do here. So let's talk about this one. Yeah. So so it, it does feel like there's a mismatch these days between what we're giving kids in high school and what they think they need after high school. And I think you're, uh, I do think you've seen the kind of value of a high school diploma going down in the marketplace. And that's part of the push that people felt to go to college is like, okay, if the high school diploma doesn't get it for me, maybe this college degree will. And then I think sometimes they end up with the college degree and even that doesn't get them what they want. Maybe they should have majored in something different or they have to go on to something after that. So so there's this, I think uh, there's a lot of anxiety from students to know, are they actually building towards something that's a job at the end of the road? One of the ways that some parents have been trying to solve for this is helping encourage their kids to get meaningful work experiences along the way. So you've seen this big pressure around internships and it's sort of a shift away from a job just for the wage to a job that's an experience. And I think there's a way to try to build more of that into a system that that students and families can plug into. So one thing we've been trying to do, for example, in Hawaii is change the way that businesses can connect into schools. So it used to be that if you wanted to have an intern, you had to sign up to be a vendor. And it was like a big, like kind of complicated process. And we've been trying to streamline that. And at the same time, we've been trying to figure out like, how do we connect the skills kids are learning in school to things that will connect into those jobs? So we've made a big push around computer science which is not the end-all be-all, but I think it's a good example of something that does have, for a lot of kids, more 
of a sense of like, okay, if I could do this well, now I, I could go and create my own app or I could go work for a company that wants this. And I think there's a whole bunch of more investments we could make along the way. And I do think that it's going to require more creative partnerships. So just like we were talking about tutoring, we're saying, you know, there was summer camp, there's all these other groups out in the world that we need to invite in. I think the same is true here. I think we've seen a real disconnect between business and industry and schooling. And that has not served kids well. Yeah, I think there's been, there was a time in, in Minnesota, and I live here, so this is why it's always my context, where the business community here was very involved in education. So most of the main advances, and I just want to tell everybody, Minnesota's probably your closest thing to Finland in the United States. It really, really, really is. It's the same size. It's the same number of people, lots of Lutherans. It's it's kind of very, very close in situation. It's a prosperous, very college-educated state. We have more Fortune 500 companies per capita than most states in the United States, and it's this little kind of civic-minded, communal learning type of environment. And the business community, for a long time, were not seen as the enemy. They were seen as kind of like just good citizens. Ecolab used to put, you know, millions of dollars into St. Paul science, you know, camps and classes. And, you know, those classes were never without the, the stuff they needed for science in their science classrooms. Well, that was provided by Ecolab and Cargill and 3M and, and, and others. Cargill actually started whole schools, a uh, principal's academy. You know, so they were seen as just good corporate citizenship. It wasn't seen as political at all. And I think what has happened over time that is not serving us is the very political talk around what business is and what, what corporations are about actually kind of hurt our ability to have them to want to step up. You used to be able to get like the president of Best Buy to say, I'm going to give X number of students uh, summer internship programs and blah, 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 blah. And now they're just, they're worried about cancellation. You used to be able to get like 15 CEOs to write a letter in the op-ed and say, we need better education. And now they don't want to do it. They're afraid to get in. And then, you know, what happens to what you're talking about right now then? So what happened to the internships? What happened to the early opportunities that you, they used to give young people while they were still in high school? They used to get to see corporate America. They used to get to see how the Tonka trucks were made. You know, they used to get insight into a lot of things that they don't anymore. And I think the political environment. Now, optimistically, get me out of this, Mr. Optimism. Like, you know, the idea that we can have those public-private partnerships again that do open up a bridge between public high school and private life after high school. I guess it would be helpful to know why it declined. And I hear you on the politics. I think that's part of it. I think I always got the impression too that, and my reference point for a lot of these things, so is Connecticut, because <laughs> you know that's where I was doing my early work. It what my impression because we struggled, struggled to get Connecticut businesses involved. And part of it was it felt like they were global increasingly and not state-based, you know? So they, you know, they, and a lot of them ended up moving out of Connecticut over that period. But I think that was part of it. It's like, well, you know, we can't get the workers we need in, in Connecticut. We'll get them in Mexico or we'll get them in China or Vietnam or whatever, you know, India. So I, I think that was part of it too. Now, I think some of those trends are reversing. So I think you've seen this big push to try to bring skilled manufacturing back into the U.S. And some of that seems to be creating traction. I just feel like we have to try again. I think it, 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 we kind of exhaust ourselves. The other thing I would say is it did feel like the last time the business community was really involved was Common Core. 
the kind of standards based thing. And that's a whole different podcast, but that really blew up in our face. And I think that hurt our, our relationships with a lot of businesses because they felt like we were asking them to do something that was, you know, politically controversial. I think going into it, people didn't know it was as politically, I mean, to have a, a common bar across states so that states can't game the system and make kids invisible who aren't doing well. To have a common standard is almost like, you know, we're either going to be on the metric system or the imperial system. We're, you know, we're going to have an alphabet. It's going to have 27, not 23 or 25. You know, it's what business would have thought that was going to be a problem. And then, oh, lo and behold, there we were right in the middle of it. It blew up on everybody. Turns out standards aren't very good for people to agree on. You have one last thing I want to talk about in here, and it's getting the college credits before you leave high school. And I'm really a big booster of this. What's the policy initiative to get early college available to more students? So there's been a few things in in our early work in New York. One of the pushes at the time, which has continued, is early college high schools. So the idea is to bring more of the college level work into high school so that you can graduate with credit that you can bring into college and then you don't, then it makes college less affordable, less expensive, I should say, affordable and a little, hopefully less intimidating because you've already proven that you can do the work. So that's part of it. But a lot of that was done with specialized schools. So I think that's kind of a policy trying to offer that to everyone. So everyone, if they want to, you can get access to college level coursework that transfers. Some of that is partnerships with the colleges too, to, to say that they're committed to that. And I think there's various versions of this that could get more or less aggressive. But I know in in the wake of the affirmative action ruling, it was Roland Fryer who was pushing this idea that the, those elite colleges have taken very little responsibility for creating pipelines in high school that they could tap into. And given how big their endowments are, you know, they could bankroll just huge numbers of uh, investment in that area. And, you know, and always with a mind towards equity, I think even, even when things have seemingly been going in the right direction in college, there's a persistent challenge of the say bottom 20% of, of family earners just consistently being left out of that experience. I think you just solved a major problem. See, this is the thing. And I should tell my audience, Mark Porter McGee is not just Mark. He's Dr. Mark, and he never uses his doctor, but he's got a PhD in sociology. So sometimes I forget that there's so much nerdery behind a lot of what you do. (laughs) Like there's a lot of information and then you have these flashpoints. And I think what he just said actually just solved the problem for me. So these colleges with the big endowments, they no longer can use race as a, as a thing, but they could set up special programs uh, designated in the most impoverished zip codes of cities that do direct kind of pipelines with those high schools in those most impoverished. And I can guarantee you they're going to get the diversity they want if they actually have programs where you get kind of like first placement in in Harvard if you're in the Harvard high school program, right? And it just so happens that that program's just in the poorest zip codes. Early Harvard. Yeah, it's early Harvard. And it just so happens it's only available in the poorest zip codes of America. And suddenly... You don't need race-based kind of admission. You, you've just fixed your problem. You've got diversity of all sorts doing that. I like it. You just solved the problem for me, Mark. I appreciate it. <laughs> there we go. I think he estimated it would cost, I forget what, some billions of dollars, but it, but it, you know, against the hundreds of billions in this endowment. So to go back to what we were saying before about optimism, the reason I try to get into that mindset is we are a really wealthy country, really wealthy. We should be able to build things 
and we shouldn't accept defeat. And I, I do think at, in the wake of the affirmative action ruling, there was a lot of hand-wringing, but there wasn't enough in my mind of like, okay, everyone needs to step up now. Like, what are we going to do about it? What is Harbor going to do about it? And I think we can demand more, but demand more and then, you know, and put our um, shoulder into it as well and say like, okay, like, you know, if Harvard wants to open up this program, we can work to, you know, maybe put some public money into it as well. And let's all invest in things that, that are going to be better. And, and maybe that ends with something that, you know, a, a lot of kids that would never have even thought of applying to Harvard suddenly now have this, this amazing opportunity. I appreciate it, man. This is a great conversation. What's the final word that you want to give people to be able to find you and find the work that you guys do? We're always looking for new friends and people we can boost and support, whether that's people working on ed policy or people who are doing work in schools and classrooms and communities. So uh, you can find me at Mark Porter McGee on Twitter for now, also threads. You want to try that one out. Um, (laughs) And and 50 can is spelled out 50 can. So F I F T Y C I N. And you can check us out wherever you find social media. Thank you so much. Everybody listening. This has been an hour with Mark Porter McGee from 50 can. He's the, the CEO and the founder of 50 can, and you can find them online. It's not spelled out. It's the numbers. 50 and then can.org. You'll be able to find what we talked about today, the five promises that America can make to its children or, or should make to its children right on the front of their website. So it's right there for you to see. You know, ending every week, we say the same thing to you. We want to hear from you. We love to get your voicemail and your email. The way that you can leave a voicemail for us is at 321-213-9171. And the way that you can send us an email is citizenstewartshow at branchmedia.org. And I like to plug that because if you go to branchmedia.org, you get to see all of the other shows that Branch Media has going on. We're just one of several. And I think you'll find some great kind of like cross-political conversations happening for everybody's taste and background at Branch Media. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. We'll have another episode for you next week.